Becky Pauline Gary was a 32-year-old single mother living in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. She liked making friends at local coffee shops and hobnobbing with the city's upper class. On December 27, 1988, she called her sister, telling her things weren't working out in Baton Rouge and that she was ready to move to Shreveport. Becky was never seen again. I'm Ed Denzel, and this is Unfound. Popularity. We all want it. We all like to be liked. In fact, it was Adam Smith who said, Man naturally desires to be loved and to be lovely. There's a reason that prom queen contests exist. There's a reason that senior class superlatives exist. Best dressed. Most musical. And what's one of those categories? Most popular. And you really don't believe that all of those student council contests that happen across the United States every year, you really don't believe those are about ideology and which candidate can do the best for the school, do you? What are they? They're popularity contests. In fact, we probably define ourselves too much by what others think of us instead of how we perceive ourselves and our character. In fact, all of us at one time or another have sacrificed our values and morals to become more popular. It's called peer pressure. But on the whole, being popular is a good thing. It shows a person is well-rounded, plays well with others, is friendly, is thoughtful, is considerate, funny, humble, modest. So, for the most part, it's a good thing. But there is a downside to it. Being popular can bring out the worst in other people. Jealousy, envy. Where do you think they got the idea for Mean Girls from? I think that was the title of the movie. And if a person becomes popular and they don't keep their ego in check, what happens? Fits of arrogance. Demagoguery. And if it goes really, really, really far, megalomania. And as Claire said in The Breakfast Club, and maybe I'm showing my age here, there's a lot of pressure being popular. Now how does that all relate to what we do on this show Unfound in missing persons cases. Well, on the upside, when it comes to somebody who is popular or maybe we could say famous, when somebody like that disappears, it's a lot of news, a lot of coverage, a lot of people get interested in it, and that can't help but possibly solve the case much more quickly. The downside of being popular in a missing person's case, is that, well, a lot of people know the victim. And that means there are more suspects. And in fact, as I told a listener recently in a conversation that had nothing to do with the case we're covering today, it's easier to figure out who murdered a hermit than who murdered the captain of the football team. Why? In the former, the police are simply looking for one person. In the latter, they have to exclude hundreds.
Those were some of my thoughts as I became more and more familiar with the disappearance of Becky Gary. She was popular. She was liked. She seemingly did not have an enemy in the world. The people who knew her liked her. She loved being social. The problem, I believe, has been that so many people knew her is that it's kind of hard to narrow down who might have wanted to make her disappear. All we know is something went wrong in December of 1988. And now a summary of the case. This is brought to you by my friend Megan Good's website, charlieproject.org. Becky Gary was last heard from on December 27, 1988, when she made a collect call to her sister Joyce in Shreveport to tell her that things weren't working out in Baton Rouge. Joyce, at that point, began to make arrangements for a family friend to go pick up Becky in a few days. When neither Becky's former boss or the family could locate Becky days later after New Year's, the landlord of Becky's apartment entered the residence to find everything packed up with suitcases and boxes on the bed. The bathtub was full of water. The coffee maker was still on, with two coffee cups sitting on a table. In addition... A ripped-up picture of Louisiana Governor Edwin Edwards was on the bed. Becky had been having an on-again, off-again affair with him for several years. The picture had formerly been in a frame and hung on a wall. Most importantly, a large manila envelope was missing. For the past year, Becky had been taking it with her everywhere. In fact, she told people that it should be opened if anything should ever happen to her. After Becky still was not seen or heard from for several days, a missing persons report was filed on January 14, 1989. Unfortunately, in the meantime, the landlord cleaned out the apartment so no true studying of the scene could be conducted. The interview for this episode is with Joyce Lee. She is the sister of Becky Gary, and as far as we know, she is the last person to speak to Becky before she disappeared. And just some housekeeping items before we get to that informative interview with Joyce. I remind you, you can find the show on Twitter. It's at Unfound Podcast, all one word. You can email the show, unfoundpodcast at gmail.com. You can listen, share, subscribe on Podomatic and iTunes. Remember, this show is free. You can join the conversation on Facebook at the Unfound Discussion Group. And please spread the word about the show on sites like WebSleuths and Reddit and any other missing persons and true crime forums. And a particularly important news item, you should know that uh, there's been a break in a case that we covered here on Unfound last year, I believe back in November. That was the disappearance of Alexis Badger slash Andrea Bowman. Dennis Bowman, who has been the prime suspect in that case for a long time, and in fact, when I talked to Andrea's biological mother, Kathy, for that episode, Dennis Bowman's name came up quite frequently. He has been subpoenaed, and he will be appearing in front of a grand jury to be asked questions about Andrea's disappearance. There's something else, though. Kathy told me that she was speaking to one of the detectives in the case, and the detective admitted to listening to the episode in which I talked to Kathy about Andrea's disappearance. 
I'm not sure what that means, but it makes me feel pretty good. And I will admit I would love to hear news like that about any case that I've already covered on Unfound and any future case. That is great news uh, for Kathy, and I'm very happy to hear that. Now, regarding this interview that I did with Joyce, we cover a lot of material, a lot of different people mentioned, a lot of different dates, a lot of facts. But most importantly, I do not want you to get caught up in the conspiracy side of this. Because you've already heard the summary of the case. You know that Becky was involved with a married governor of Louisiana. And frankly, Edwin Edwards was no angel. So I know it's very easy to get caught up in some sort of cover-up conspiracy. Joyce wanted me to convey this to you. Becky's daughter, Jamie, wanted me to convey this to all of you. And it's important to me as well is that you just accept Edwin Edwards' part of the story as equal to everything else because really I think that's the way this case is ultimately going to get solved. It may be over the years that too many people have concentrated on the government angle when maybe other aspects of Becky's life need to be concentrated on. I'd appreciate that. I now present to you my interview with Joyce Lee, sister of Becky, and the last person we know of to have talked to Becky. But you should also know that Becky's daughter, Jamie Williams, also contributed to this interview and episode. Thank you, Jamie. I'm so happy to have on this episode of Unfound, Becky, Gary's sister, Joyce Lee. Joyce, welcome to Unfound. Well, thank you. Please tell the listeners uh, a little bit about your sister, um, maybe just a story or two about what you remember growing up with her, and that's how we'll start this interview out. Um, we were actually just 13 months different in age, and um, we you know, grew up sharing everything, sharing clothes, sharing a bedroom, and you know, pretty much as, I guess, best friends, you know, um, at one point, I think it was maybe sixth grade, we were in the same class together, mm-hmm. usually they didn't do that, but we had so much fun that year, um, and the teacher, we were kind of like the teacher's pets, you know, they kind of just split us, split us huh. you know, so we, we had a really great time that year, but anyway, mm-hmm. um, we pretty much had the same friends most of the time, you know, until we got a little bit older, so mm-hmm. we were, you know, pretty much, you know, best friends. Was she your older sister or younger sister? Older. She's 13 months older than me. Okay. And so you did you graduate high school together? I mean, sixth grade all through high school, or, or how did that go? Well, actually, actually, both of us ended up dropping out of school. Hmm. Both of us ended up getting a GED. Okay. So, you know, we, uh, I think high school, she was, she had advanced, you know, she was a year ahead of me again. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I went the following year, you know, after she went, you know, to high school. Mm-hmm. And then after that point is when she dropped out, and then the next year is when I, I dropped out. So. Okay. Now, you told me, uh, the listeners should know, that any interview that happens on this show, I have a preliminary talk 
with my guests so we can kind of get all the facts straightened out and everything. Joyce, you had told me that your father had died. And when did that happen? How old were you? How old were was Becky? And, and how did that affect your family? Uh, he died of February 20th of 1963. Mm-hmm. Um, Becky was six years old and I was five years old. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it pretty much devastated us, you know. Um, my mother never drove, never learned how to drive, so... Um, when he passed away, there were five small kids at home, and, you know, we didn't have a vehicle after, you know, he passed away, so, mm-hmm. um, it was, you know, tough growing up. We were, um, mm-hmm. pretty much, uh, pretty poor, you know, family. A lot of times, you know, uh, meals were like potato soup or, um, uh, mayonnaise sandwiches and, you know, stuff like that. So we, we didn't have, you know, a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. um, I think his death really affected Becky the most. Um, mm-hmm. She just, um, on the way back from the funeral, you know, my mother told me that she, you know, said, you, you just have to get me another daddy. Any daddy I'll do. I'll just have to have a daddy. Mm-hmm. So she just, um, you know, mm-hmm. So it, not just at six years old, but 10 years old, 15, just something that right. kind of stuck with her. Yeah, her whole life, yeah. Okay. How about you? How did you handle that, your father passing? Um, I don't remember as well. And I was the... I, I, he, he had to sleep downstairs by himself, you know, because he was sick. He had oxygen in his room. He had tuberculosis and... Oh, and I snuck downstairs every night and slept with him. Mm-hmm. And, um, but I, I don't remember feeling as big of a loss as what Becky did. And that's really kind of surprising, you know, because mm-hmm. I did sleep with him every night. And, um, mm-hmm. I was, I was the more sickly child. I had eye operations. I had a brain tumor oh, behind my eye. And I had, um, my first surgery at nine months old and then one surgery every year after that till eight or nine years old. So I think maybe dad might have um, petted me a little bit more, you know, and, and maybe that's why I went and slept with him. I don't, I don't really know. Okay. But, okay. But, uh, All right. Um, now we need to set this up. The, uh, you got older, uh, you both dropped out of uh, high school, but the, you ended up both get, getting GEDs. But you, as you said, you, it, this loss of your father, it tended to affect Becky more than it did you. And Becky got involved. Well, let's just put it this way. Give me, give the listeners an idea of what 1970s Louisiana was like, specifically Law enforcement, because these are the types of guys that Becky, in particular, seem to be attracted to. What can you tell me about 1970s Louisiana? Well, back in the 1970s, in Shreveport especially, um, we were under a different type of government than what, you know, there was not a police. Well, I guess there might have been a police chief. There was a commissioner of public safety rather than a mayor, I think. 
Hmm. Or, or something to that effect. I've never heard of that. Commissioner of Public Safety. Okay. And um, he controls, you know, everything. He controls the police department. He controls everything. And with, um, he was later arrested. He, he was kind of like one of those... Um, crooked power guys, you know, like you see in mafia movies and stuff. You okay. Know? Um, he used his... Um, he was corrupt. Oh, he yeah. used his position to ingratiate, you know, uh, to enrich yeah. himself, put yeah. put public money into his own pockets, things like that. Yeah. Just kind of ran the yeah. town with an iron fist or something like that. So, so later, you know, um, well, I guess whenever they switched to the different, you know, type of government with the um, the mayor and the police chief and that kind of stuff running things, and um, he was indicted and and put in prison, and I think it was kind of ironic, he died like a month after, you know, from a heart attack or something like that, you know. Hmm. Um, but anyway, the police department pretty much, you know, they did whatever he said to do, and, you know, it was just kind of a real corrupt, you know. Okay. You, you never knew who you could trust and who you couldn't, you know, as far as the police department. Mm-hmm. But Becky got to be friends with some of these guys. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. She was always attracted to older, you know, men, men in uniform. And like I said, I think that had something to do with our dad dying, you know. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. He, I guess, was searching for that father figure or, or whatever. Um, okay. So, and, yeah. and she would not be the first woman who was attracted to a man in a uniform, so I'm not, so not going to blame her. Yeah. But these guys, some of them were corrupt. And some of them were, you know, just not what we usually think of police in the United States these days. You know, it's right. maybe, maybe, you know, even, even in, I hope in Louisiana, it's, hope it's a lot more orderly um, than it is now. But uh, a story that you told me maybe to illustrate this uh, was the story that you told me uh, about you and your, uh, a friend of yours. I don't, I'm not going to give her her name. Uh, but you told me that some police came to your house one night looking for Becky, and they came inside. What happened? Um, they they came um, actually in the bedroom, and um, um, they you know asked you know Becky, and I said, "Well, she's not here," mm-hmm. and he went out of the room. I locked the door so he couldn't get back in, and they then they went in. Both of them went in the next room to me where uh, my friend was. Yeah, we don't need to mention um, her name, but yeah. Yeah, and um, they raped her, and I heard, you know, everything, and yeah. I was scared, you know. So I was like, "Are they gonna, you know, break the door down and come after me, or you know?" Yeah. So, um, yeah. That Okay. What year do you think that was? How old were you? Oh, let me think. Um, I was not yet working yet. Um, maybe, maybe 16. All right. And was your friend around the same age, probably? Yeah. Yeah. And just so the listeners, we can say that once again, these... Cops 
came to the house looking for Becky. She wasn't there. Instead, they raped a friend of yours. Did those cops ever pay for what they did? I can understand you were fearful, but did they get away with it? Yeah, they got away with it. We didn't report it. We were scared. We didn't know what to do. Okay. I think that'll give the listeners a good idea of Shreveport Police in the 1970s. And, and once again, for the listeners, this is, all, this is all information that's going to come back later. Uh, it's going to be pertinent later. Um, now, we don't want to sensationalize this. Uh, we're going to treat this guy like we treat anybody else on the show, but being that he had a relationship uh, with your sister, we need to talk about it. Uh, what can you tell uh, the listeners about Becky's relationship that started with the former governor of Louisiana, Edward Edwards, in the late 70s, early 80s? What do you remember about that? Um, I don't remember exactly how old she was when it was when it started. I, mm-hmm. I do know that she was a juvenile at the time. Um, she would send one of things to the house to pick her up. Um, one time in particular, um, she asked me, because she didn't have a vehicle at the time, she asked me to take her to this um, $1,000 plate dinner or whatever that was at the Civic Center. It was, I guess, a fundraiser for him or whatever. He mm. was re, uh, running for re-election or whatever. And um, so I took her, and we did not pay anything. And he was in the receiving line, you know, when we walked in, and she introduced me to him, and mm-hmm. he, you know, um, caressed my hand and, you know, told me it was nice to meet me. And then after the dinner was over, we went to the hotel where he was staying, and um, we went to the bar, and all of his bodyguards were in there, and they were buying our drinks. Wow. And um, I had to work the next day, so um, I, you know, told Becky I was I was leaving, and she said she was going to stay there. That he would be, you know, or she she would go to him shortly, or mm-hmm. I guess go to his room, you know. Mm-hmm. So, um, but the the body the bodyguards knew her very well, you know. Um, they called her by name how you've been doing and hadn't seen you, blah, 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 you know, just uh, like an old friend would greet another friend, you know. So when you say that, it, when they when you say that the bodyguards knew her, it wasn't like they knew her as in they were trying to protect the governor from her. In fact, these, got, these bodyguards knew Becky, and they were friendly with her, and they kind of yeah. knew that the governor was having a relationship with her. Right, so what it's so we don't want to portray that she was not a stalker. She and uh, Edwin Edwards had this kind of on again, uh, off again relationship. Do you remember how the two of them met? Does, did, any ideas? I, I really, I really don't know. Okay, I, I, I don't remember it at all. I do know she wrote him letters all the time, and you know, I mean, through years and years, you know, she mm-hmm. wrote letters to him, and she sent him flowers. Know, like birthday or whatever, you know. I mean, mm-hmm. it was a um, long, you know. It went, it went right up until she disappeared. Right. So it was like she would move to Baton Rouge, and every time she would move to Baton Rouge, that was the reason she was moving to Baton Rouge. And then mm-hmm. she worked on his campaign, you know. Um, mm-hmm. 
would move back, and then she would move back down there again. So that was a, an mm. ongoing thing as well. So the, and so they kept this up, even though, like you've told me in our prior conversation, she would move. I think she moved to Washington one time. But then she'd always come back to Baton Rouge and she'd kind of – I mean she's coming back to him or just coming back to the area to see family. But through all of this, like through the 80s, she and he had this you know, hot and cold relationship. Yeah. Okay. Uh, to your knowledge, was, she, was he ever violent with her? Did she, ever, did she ever say to you, you know, he beat me up or anything? Never saw any bruises on her or anything like that. Just once again, this is going to be relevant later. Just no. Okay. So you would say that even though he was married, but he, otherwise he treated her fairly well. Yes, I would think so, yeah. Okay. And it should be known for the record that if anybody doesn't know Louisiana history, that Edwin Edwards actually is still alive today, but he did end up going to jail later for corruption and various charges having to do with his time as governor. And also, I think, uh, Joyce, you can back me up on this. He was known as a little bit of a womanizer anyway. This isn't really oh, any, any big time. Oh, big time. Okay. 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 So, Becky, uh, um, during this time, she had a daughter. What can you what can you tell us about? And I've had a chance to talk to Becky's daughter, and she actually contributed uh, to the show with some with some information. I thank her for that. Um, Becky had a daughter during this time. Um, did you, did Jamie and Becky when Becky would go away would they go together? How did how did that all happen? Most of most of the time they would go together. Okay. Um, at one point, I did talk Jamie into leaving her with me, and I think at that time she did go to Baton Rouge. Um, mm -hmm. And I think Jamie might have been third grade, and so, you know, she stayed with me, and I sent her to school and all of that until she came back and knocked on the door, and there she was, you know. Mm -hmm. so, okay. All the other time she was with her. All right, and did the father of Jamie have any um, any interaction in her life? Let's just put it. Let's just put it that way. On and off. On and off. Yes. Okay. When Jamie was little, I would take her to um, where he was working security on the weekends, and um, Becky really didn't know about it. You know, I would just take her and. Um, okay. You know, then, you know, he would come to my mom's house sometimes and see her. Mm -hmm. You know, one time he took her and bought her clothes. Okay. All right. Uh, so during the 80s, Becky's working. She's being a single mom. She's moving away from the area. She's coming back. She's having this relationship with Edwin Edwards on and off, but she was seeing other guys as well. Okay, but Edwin Edwards was, like, always the number one guy, kind of. Yeah. Okay, so if she was with some guy and Edwin Edwards came into town or called her up or something, she'd probably – that was her always her uh, – the number one guy that got her attention. Let's just put that. Right. Okay. Okay. Let's um, come up a little closer to uh, – 
the time that she disappeared. What do you remember about that time? Let's just say 87 into 88. What do you, what do you remember about that time uh, that sticks out to you? Um, what was going on in Becky's life at that time? Well, she was here, I know for a fact, in 87, um, in Freeport, and um, sometime during that year, she was interrogated by the new Freeport police chief mm -hmm. about any knowledge of uh, wrongdoing of different members of the Shreveport Police Department. She was pretty shook up after that. Mm -hmm. And it just seems to me that after that time is when she started becoming paranoid and looking out the window and um, mm -hmm. gathered papers or whatever in this manila envelope that she, you know, carried around. Yes. Um, and then at the end of 87, February, no, yeah. must have been the beginning, anyway, towards the middle, somewhere in that year, she went to Baton Rouge again. Um, yeah. And then um, I was getting married in February of 89, so the 88, um, you know, she was in Baton Rouge, so it mm. could have been later. But you were in, you were in Shreveport. She's in Baton Rouge. Yeah. Okay. Was she going to be in your wedding? Was she one of the bridesmaids or your? Well, she she wasn't, but her daughter was. Oh, okay. And um, but you know, she wouldn't have missed it for anything. Okay. You know. Let's go back to this interrogation. I looked up a little bit about this new police chief. I found some articles in this. This Gruber guy he certainly did get got a lot of static becoming the, in getting in that position because he was seen as like an out of towner guy. He was not promoted from within the department. He was from another state, and it seems like he came in wanting to clean things up. And this goes back to why I asked you earlier about police forces in Louisiana at the time. This guy came in wanting to kind of straighten things up, and. He somehow found out about your sister and asked her about some of the things like you said about this, uh, you know, these cops um, raping some women, cheating on their wives with women. And Becky, because she was friends with them, would know a lot about this. This is what he asked her about, didn't he? Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. Okay. And do you think that she – yeah, do you think that she told the truth? I, I really feel like – I, I don't know why she wouldn't. You know. Okay. Um, I know if it were me in that position, I would. I would tell the truth. But, you know, I'm just a, I'm right. a, a rule follower type person. So. Right. Well, you know, I would say, though, that you said that she was a little nervous after she did this. That would lead me to believe that she told the truth. Yeah. You, you know, that I guess we might yeah. make that assumption. Uh, what were some of the things that, you know, Becky was doing otherwise? She was working? Um, she worked a lot of different jobs on and off, and um, she really didn't have a um, strong work ethic. Mm -hmm. um, people didn't like her, and she quit, you know. I think a lot of people didn't like her because she was beautiful, and they were jealous, you mm. know, and that's 
that went all the way back to her childhood and in school, you know. I mean, all the girls didn't like her, and I think because they were jealous. Okay. So it, it carried over into her her work. She would quit a job if somebody didn't like her. And, you know, I would just tell her, you need to just, you know, grin and bear it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Do you, do you have that strong... Do you remember during any of that time or her ever telling you or you hearing about anybody threatening her, anybody after her? I know that you, you said that she was paranoid, and I will get into that in a little bit, but did she ever say any names or, or anything like that that you can remember? No, she, she didn't say any names at all. No, she did have this one boyfriend at one time. He was a... Um, she was going to a truck driving school here in Shreveport when she met him. Mm-hmm. She moved down to his uh, home in Boyd, Galena, Louisiana. That's two different little towns that are like side by side. Um, <clears throat> and she lived with him there for a while with Jamie. And it was on his parents' property. And it was um, like a... Almost, it looked like a garage from the outside, but the inside was, you know, living space, but it was one open area. Mm. Um, and she lived with that guy for a short time. Uh, I'm, I don't know, maybe maybe six months, maybe nine months. Okay. Somewhere in there. Um, and that guy had written her a threatening letter, um, you mm. know, after she broke up with him and, and moved back to Shreveport. Wow, how long so, do you, can you give me an estimation of how long this happened before she disappeared? A year before? Six months before? Uh, Any ideas? Maybe a couple of years. Oh, okay. Might have been, been nine or ten. Okay. Uh, when, when that occurred. Okay. Now, she, you had, we'd spoken about her uh, work habits and having a job, then quitting it, moving to another one. Before, Shortly before she disappeared, she had quit a job, right? Right. She had quit her job. Okay. Now, this when she disappeared, obviously, um, this uh, although it's marked December 27th, there was something that strange occurred before Christmas, like a week before, that she, it, I, I guess the plan was for her and Jamie – to go from Baton Rouge to Shreveport for Christmas. That's not what happened. What happened instead? Um, she stayed in Baton Rouge and just sent Jamie on the bus instead. Mm-hmm. And she really didn't give a reason mm-hmm. that I can remember. Okay. Um, w- given prior years... Uh, if she was to go up to Shreveport for Christmas, would she go up? Like she sent uh, Jamie up there on December 18th, a full week before Christmas. Was that the plan or were they going to supposed to come up like at December 22nd or 23rd, a little closer to Christmas? What do you think the usual p- pattern was back then? Well, she, she um, I don't think she had really decided exactly what date, you know, that mm-hmm. they were coming. And I kind of pressured her into you know, getting Jamie here as soon as she could um, because we needed to measure for dresses and that kind of stuff oh, okay. you know, for the wedding. Okay, well, then that would make sense. A week before, I guess, would 
you know, give you a chance to do that before Christmas came around and, you know, you get involved in all of that. Uh, would it have surprised you if on December 18th both Becky and Jamie ended up going to Shreveport? Would that have been any surprise? But, no, uh, it wouldn't have been Okay, okay. And I, I've talked to Jamie about this. She also has no idea why her mother didn't go with her to up to Shreveport, right? No idea. Right. Mm-hmm. No idea. And, and really, well, we kind of suspect, and maybe we'll, we'll get into that in a moment. Um, so she abruptly, out of nowhere, sends Jamie alone on a bus, 12 years old, to uh, Shreveport. So Becky is staying by herself in, in Baton Rouge for some reason. Did you have a chance to talk to her? in those days after Jamie had already reached Shreveport I I was thinking back um, I wish I had a copy of that phone deal I really do mm-hmm. but I was I was thinking back I think I did speak with her um, several times during that time period leading up to the 27th okay. after Jamie was on the bus you know because of course when I picked Jamie up from the bus station you know I called her and told her well, I, I think she called us, like, because she didn't have a phone. I mm-hmm. think uh, uh, she called to make sure that, you know, she had made it here and that kind of stuff. And, you know, we, we talk frequently, you know, all the time, no matter where she lived. You know, she, at least a couple of times a week or so. Okay. Know? So I feel pretty sure that, you know, one, we talked right after Jamie got here, and then we probably talked at least two other times, if not more, you know, um, leading up to that last phone call on the 27th. Okay. Since she didn't have a phone, how would you get in touch with her? Well, she told me, you know, when she, when she asked, you know, for me to get her friend to um, come down there and move her back to I asked her, I said, well, how am I going to get in touch with you because, you know, you don't have a phone. And she said to call her ex-employer, and he would know how to get in touch with her. And so that's what I did. Um, And how would he, do you have any idea how he would get in touch with her? I would assume um, either, you know, she would stop in the business to see Uh him or... Okay. Okay, so he wouldn't like have a secret phone number for her or anything. He'd actually have to get in his car and go drive somewhere to pass on a message, and then she'd call you collect. Right. Any of these times you talked to her, did she ever say where she was calling from? No, she never did. Was that something that was common? You know, you talked to her, like you said, you talked to her quite often. You're, you're living in Shreveport. She's living in Baton Rouge. Maybe you talked a couple times a week. Do you happen to remember where she would call from in any times like in the preceding year? No. No. Just she called and you just could have been anywhere. Could have been a coffee shop, some pay phone, anything like that. I, I pretty much always assumed it was a pay phone, you know. 
Okay. Um, you know, back in that day, phones were everywhere, you know. Um, so, you know, that's what I kind of always assumed. Okay. Now, so... Do, last, okay, please. This is the final phone call. We're gonna we're going to get that at uh, uh, very shortly. But during that December eighteenth to twenty seventh, she never did give you any reason that she never showed up for your family's Christmas. Never, never gave you an explanation. Yeah. Okay, you had to be pretty ticked about that. I bet your mother had to be pretty ticked about that too. Yeah. And still, you know, despite this anger, she was pretty obstinate. I'm sure you asked her. She just didn't want to tell you. Right. Uh, i got to ask you a question. Now that that happened, what do you think was going on during those days? What do you suspect? Mm. I, I really don't know. I, 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 I don't know. Okay. Could she have been with a guy? Could she have been with Edwin Edwards? Could she have been with an, a, a guy? Could she have taking a trip did I now that afterwards and we'll get to the you know what happened afterwards did anybody report seeing her like her former boss or anybody at these coffee shops did anybody report seeing her in any of that area between the time that Jamie left to go to Shreveport and 27th the last time you talked to her um the uh, former boss you know when I had talked with him on the phone mm -hmm. um and he said he just said he had not seen her since December 24th and that he was trying to find her. Okay, so he saw her on Christmas Eve and then he came back looking for her later and couldn't find her. Right. Okay, great. All right. Now, on the 27th, she calls you. This is the last time, and uh, the listeners should know that Joyce is the last person, as far as we know, was the last person to talk uh, to Becky. You are in Shreveport. She is in Baton Rouge. She calls you. What does she say? Um, she just said, um, instead of sending Jamie back here on the bus, um, get in touch with my friend and get them to um, drive down here to Baton Rouge and move me back up to Shreveport. Uh, things aren't working out as I thought they would. What did that mean to you? What did that mean to you? She seemed nervous. Okay. She seemed nervous, you know, um, when she said that. Um, to me, I, I just kind of thought that, you know, I guess, you know, she had quit her job for whatever reason, you know, maybe somebody didn't like her or whatever, I don't know. For mm -hmm. um, and that, you know, things just, you know, maybe she wasn't... Um, able to see Edwin Edwards as much as she wanted to or, okay. or whatever just wasn't working out and so she was wanting to come back here okay okay um so she wanted 
somebody, a friend of yours, to drive down there to Baton Rouge and get her to come back up. Did that friend ever do that? No, because we were uh, sitting at the time. That's why I called her former boss, is to tell him when when that friend was going to be there to get her. Mm-hmm. And that's when he said he couldn't you know, find her, that he's been trying to get in touch with her, and he couldn't find her. So we decided for him not to drive down there since we couldn't locate her. Right. Right. And this would have so when the the boss couldn't locate her, and he had a che- in fact he had a paycheck for her. Yes, he did. Okay, so he had a paycheck for, her and she and she was not a of course a rich woman. She would probably need that paycheck, and still she couldn't be found. Right. Okay. Um, and that's what that's what really alarmed me at the time. You know, I bet knowing she had she had a paycheck waiting there for her. And and I know she would need that money, you know. So that's what made me think that something was up, you know. Right. It's not being able to get in touch with her and then having a paycheck there. Right. Okay. Um, now, the next probably, the next time, probably you're already worried a little bit. The landlord, what, what went on with the landlord of the place that she was staying at? Well, they had... Um, called my brother and asked for her and he said, well, you know, she's not here. And uh, he called me and had me call them. So I called them. And called the landlord. Said, called the landlord. Yeah. Okay. They said that she hadn't paid the rent and that um, they thought she were here, you know, was here in Shreveport for the holiday. Um, and... I told him, no, we've been trying to find her. She's not, you know, we can't find her. And, you know, and then I asked them if they would go in the apartment and look. Mm -hmm. Um, So they went in the apartment, and then they called me back and told me um, that her purse was there, her keys were there, her cigarettes. um, And there were, the coffee pot was left on, the lights were on. There were two wow. cups on the counter. Um, hmm. What do you remember? What the date of this might have been? Obviously, I'm going to guess she had to pay her rent on just January first. Maybe the landlord gives a little grace period of a couple days. I think my landlord would do the same thing. So maybe around January fourth, this could have been. Yes. Okay. So you had talked to her on the de- December 27th. That was the last time you talked to her, and so then finally a week later. In the, pro- in the meantime, the boss is trying to find her, but it's not until January 4th, a week later, that somebody that we know of actually steps foot in the apartment to see what's going on. Right. Okay. Uh, what did you do at that point when the landlord got back to you and said, you know what? She's not here. Um, I called the police department. Okay. And what happened then? <laughs> Nothing. Okay. All right. Uh, Probably just having a good time, you know. Um, you know. Mm-hmm. So I called the police department every single day after that until whatever day they finally went there. And was that a week later, two weeks later? Um, I don't remember exactly. Was it before February? 
Yeah, it was before February. Okay. Um, as a matter of fact, that's the case. Uh, the date that I finally got him to go is the date they used in the case ID of her formal case, you know, okay. missing person's case. Okay. Um, I believe it might have been a week later. I think it probably took me about a week of calling them every single day and getting madder and uglier yeah, every time I called them, you know, to try to get them to, to take me serious that this was a real thing and, and she was really missing and she just wasn't off having a good time somewhere and, you know, that kind of stuff. So, um, it's really frustrating. But I don't know if you know much about the state of Louisiana. Mm-hmm. It's um, Napoleon Rule. It's the only state in the United States that has parishes and not counties. And, right. Um, it's still under French laws, um, so it's very different from any other state. Hmm. Um, mafia is big in Louisiana. Mm-hmm. as there is, you know, all the corruption, so. Okay. <laughs> all right, but so so maybe the Baton Rouge to Police Department, not that much different from the Shreveport to Police Correct. Department. Okay, so you have these guys showing up, but you don't have a lot of confidence in them. But on the other hand, given Becky's, you know, she was known. These A lot of these cops knew her. Yes. Okay, so it could be some of these cops who were showing up to, to uh, you know, to answer this disappearance call. Maybe one or two of them actually might have known her one way or the other. Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. All right. Um, and so you filled out the police depart- police report, and we'll get into that in a little bit. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the condition of the the apartment uh, when the landlord went in the first time, and I'm going to guess it was same – at least at that point, um, she had everything packed up, didn't she? She had suitcases and things. What do you know about that? Yeah. She had, you know, boxes packed up, suitcases packed up. Everything was packed up and ready to go as if she was waiting on the friend to, you know, come and get her. Right. So she, was, so she was seemingly following through on what she told you earlier that, you know, things aren't working out here. And so she was, you know, you could look at, and when you say everything packed up, do you mean like Jamie's clothes, maybe Jamie, any other things that Jamie's possessions, dolls or whatever else packed up, her clothes packed up as if somebody is moving, not just going on a vacation, but moving. Right. Okay. All right. So that would take some work for her to do that. That would take some time. Okay. And you said the coffee maker was still on even. So it was like yeah. burnt, you know how it gets. It can burn. There were two, there were two cups on on a table on the counter. Uh, do you know if anything was still in them? Were they empty? Were they half full? Any ideas? I, I don't know. I don't know okay. that. Okay. And but the bathtub also was full of water. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Well, that's that's uh, interesting. Uh, and most telling, um, once again, he's going to have to come up in this, uh, tell the listeners about the picture of Edwin Edwards. 
there was a picture of Edwin Edwards on her bed that was ripped to pieces. Okay. And that picture, um, Jamie had told me that that was something that she had gotten for her mother. She had gone over to the office and uh, gotten that for, and it was signed by Edwin Edwards. Is that correct? Is that my, am I right? Yeah. Am I right? And yeah. I believe that it wasn't just like a regular picture, like, I don't know, like you might put in the frame of a mirror or something. It was actually framed and hanging on a wall. Right. Okay. And so it was taken out of the frame and, and torn up. Wow. Okay. That, that, uh, I guess uh, the listeners can read into that whatever they want, but that's an interesting uh, part of it. Now, you had mentioned earlier, and we're going to get to it right now because this is probably – I don't know if you'd call it the most controversial part, but definitely the most mysterious part of this. Tell the listeners about this envelope that she took everywhere. Yeah, right before she moved that time to go back to Baton Rouge after her interrogation at the Shreveport Police Department, she came up with this manila envelope, eight and a half by eleven, um, and it was pretty thick uh, with papers. And she told me, you know, if anything happens to me, uh, it's all in this envelope. And she kept it with her. She kept it in her hands and she spent the night at my house uh, right before she moved back to Baton Rouge and she slept with it in between the mattress and the box springs and um, mm-hmm. you know, she, I, she never really stated exactly what was in it. Um, I wish I had pressed the issue and sure. um, you know. Sure. But you don't really think about those things at the time, you know. Uh, I have to. Be, I have to ask you this: Is there at any point when you, she was doing this that you thought she's just putting she's put just putting me on? Did you ever? Did that ever? Honestly, did that ever go through your head? Or did you? Did you all, from one from day one? Do you think, man, this is something serious? Yeah, I thought it was something serious. I thought, you know, that okay, you know. That she was into something that, you know. So when you say envelope, it was a manila envelope. Was it like regular, like 8 by 11 paper size? Or was it like one of those legal, that you know, tend to be legal? I think it was paper size. Okay. I don't think it was a legal size. Okay, so 8 by 11. And did, how thick was it? I mean, did it have any weight to it? Did it make any noise when she put it on the counter? Anything like that? No. It was probably an inch thick. Okay. Hmm. Uh, Any, I mean, do do you remember the first time, you said it popped up sometime after she was interrogated in Shreveport. Um, Do you think that there were like pictures in there or, you know, I, I mean, have have you really sat down and thought about what could have been in there? Because I ask you because the listeners are probably thinking, well, what could somebody have had in 1987, 88, kind of before computers, before the Internet? What would she have been able to get her hands on that might be dangerous? Just, I really don't know. Um, mm-hmm. It could be 
you know, could have been pictures and it could have been handwritten documents or photocopied documents. But I really don't know. Don't know. Okay. But so she took that with her everywhere. She had it, I guess I'm going to say, for at least a year because the interrogation happened, I think, in 1987. And so when her apartment was checked out, the envelope wasn't there, was it? No, it wasn't. Completely disappeared. And then when all of her things were brought to Shreveport to my house, Mm -hmm. it was not in there because that's the first thing I did was look for it. Uh Uh-huh. That certainly does lend credence to the idea that there might have actually been some important things in there. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm sure your family had to be really creeped out by that too. I mean, I obviously your sister's gone, your mother's daughter's gone, everybody's sad, but then that probably added another whole layer to this. Right. Yeah. And uh, it, was, it was discussed, you know, with the Baton Rouge Police right. detectives as well. Right. Of course, of course. Uh, but she left her purse there, her cigarettes. I mean, it really just looks like she just walked off and took that envelope with her. Yeah, possible. Yeah. yeah. Any forensics done? Anything like that? They didn't do anything. Um, by the time that the Baton Rouge Police Department arrived at her apartment to check it, it had been emptied out. It had been cleaned. There was... You know, it was ready to rent again. It was, you know. The apartment complex was going to put all of her stuff on the street. So I had my brother that was stationed at Keeper Air Force Base in Biloxi to go over there and get all of her stuff and bring to my house. Uh, How many people got to see the interior of the apartment uh, before everything was taken out of it? The landlord got to see it. Uh, Did the police get to see it? No. Wow. My, probably my brother, Glenn, the one that, that got her stuff and brought, mm-hmm. you know, to my house in Shreveport. Probably just the landlord in him. Okay. So really what we're saying is the, the what we know about the apartment and its condition really just comes from two people, the landlord and your brother. Okay, so there were were there any pictures taken of the inside? No. You know, to 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 see everything and where it was sitting or anything. No. Wow. Okay. Well, that makes it tough. Yeah, and then you know, my brother had just said, you know, there was no in the apartment manager as well. There was mm-hmm. no sign of forced entry. Mm-hmm. Just to see. Okay. You know, it just seems to me if the, the bathtub's full of water or something, it seems like she was getting, she'd just put all this stuff together. I mean, somebody, you know, your average person probably look at this and say, uh, she was did all this work, putting all this stuff, getting ready to go back to uh, Shreveport, was running a bath, going to take a nice bath, and somebody came to the door, somebody she knew. You know, and, and, yeah. and, and you, could, you, know, you could look at it that way, given that there were two cups there and the... And the uh, the coffee maker was on. So That's kind of what I I have thought, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that's certainly what it looks like to me. Okay. You know, no forced entry or anything. All of her stuff is there. So 
somebody came to the door that she knew. Yeah. And regarding the missing persons report, when was that filed? And uh, I know that you weren't you're not very pleased with the police department, but you did file a report. And what went on there? Um, it was filed probably maybe the second week in January of 1989. Mm-hmm. Because as I said before, it took me that long to get them to even take me serious and yeah um they i guess went to the apartment complex first they talked to the apartment manager they looked at the apartment you know after the fact um they sent two missing persons detectives to Shreveport um and talked to me they went through all of her stuff and looked through all of her stuff um, they went back to Baton Rouge, and at that time, they talked to me on the phone pretty frequently. Okay. Um, and then a few months later, I got a call, and it was homicide detectives and not missing persons detectives, mm. which I thought was kind of strange because without, you know, why, and I asked them, you know, why was it turned over to homicide? I mean, you know, but I really didn't get a, a straight answer on that. But anyway, they came to Shreveport and they um, interviewed um, all of, they wanted all the family members, you know, and, and they interviewed all of those. And, uh, it seems like they had a camera, uh, you know, with the lights and all that kind of stuff. Um, they had three pictures of three different men mm-hmm. uh, and asked Jamie if she knew them and she did know all three of them. She did? Who were they? You don't don't say any names. Just who were who were just give the descriptions or how Becky might have known them. How about that? Uh she called Jamie called all three of them by name. I don't remember what their names were actually, but um one of them was um somebody I think Complex. Okay. And another one was the head of the DOT department for the state of Louisiana. Wow. And, uh, yeah. And another one, I think, might have been an acquaintance, uh, maybe from the coffee shop or something. All right, this coffee shop that was right around the corner from where she lived. Right. Okay. Um. Speaking of that coffee shop, do you know that the, the police went over to that coffee shop to ask them if if anybody had seen her in those days before, between December 18th and December 27th? Any, any knowledge of that? I, I don't know if they did or not. Okay. Uh, did you Were you aware that Becky might have known the head of the DOT, Department of Transportation in Louisiana? Was that a surprise to you? Um. I wasn't aware that she did know him, but it wasn't really a surprise because, you know, like I said, she she always kind of sought out um, men of power, men of uniform, or, you know, policemen, firemen. Um, right. You know, and and I, I think that was, you know, looking for the father figure type. Okay, but no idea, once again, how she might have run into him. 
unless it was maybe through Edwin Edwards, maybe. Yeah, possibly. Okay. Or, or possibly a, uh, a function, you know, like right. a, a fundraiser thing or a, a cocktail party or, you right. know. Right. Okay. Um, what was your family saying at this time? You know, I, I know, you. of course, you had a wedding coming up in February, but yeah. what was your family saying about this? What were their suspicions, you know, at that time in early 1989? Well, I guess, I guess kind of like me, you know, we were thinking that, you know, she would show up, you know. Hmm. Um, you know, granted, I did think it was kind of odd that I did expect her to, you know, walk in the door any second, you know. Hmm. Even a, even after her apartment had been cleared out and the police, you did all this paperwork, they were still thinking that, you know, that that she might pop up. Yeah. Did it? I mean, how much did it enter your mind that maybe something bad did happen to her? At the time, it really didn't. But it didn't. You know, as okay. Time, as, as time went on, you know, of course, you know, it, it did. But you know. Right. Uh, did Edwin Edwards, uh, people should know that Edwin Edwards actually ended up getting divorced that next year. At any point, did he offer condolences to your family, send you a letter, anything like that, you know, expressing any condolences that Becky disappeared, anything? Have you had any, your family had any contact with him since your sister Becky disappeared in late 1988? No, not at all. Nothing. No. Nothing. Even though he had known her for like 10 years or something like that. Right. Um, wow. And as we're talking, I, I just suddenly remembered one other time that uh, I had taken her to meet him. Uh, she was living in Baton Rouge and I was visiting. I don't really remember what year. Mm-hmm. I, I just thought about this. Um, I went with her... We got dressed up really fancy, um, and we went to a cocktail party at the Marriott, mm-hmm. which is right along um, Interstate 10 uh, in Baton Rouge. As a matter of fact, every time I go to New Orleans or Baton Rouge or anywhere, um, and I pass that Marriott, that night floods back to me, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, there, it was a lot of... Um, high-powered, dignitary people, um, you know, with the state of Louisiana, you know, with the capital being there in Baton Rouge, it was like, I don't know what kind of function it was. It was just a cocktail party, but it was all of those those type of people. And mm. again, I left her there that night. Okay. Okay, I just want to ask you one more question uh, about those, the, the getting back to the December 18th to 27th, and then we're going to move on uh, to, you know, some things that popped up later. Is there any chance between that time of December 18th to 27th that maybe uh, Becky wasn't, maybe wasn't in town at all? I know the boss said that he ran into her on Christmas Eve, but is there any chance that maybe she went on a little trip with Edwin Edwards or somebody else? She was out of town. I mean, you were talking to her, but it was collect. She could have been... Or do you believe that she was in Baton Rouge all that time, those nine days? 
I kind of believe she was in Baton Rouge because the, um, okay. you know, the telephone bill when I got it, all the numbers were Baton Rouge area code. Right. I'm glad you brought that up. You actually at one point had the number of the last phone she called from because she was calling collect. Unfortunately, that's gotten lost over the years, or the police took it, right? Right. Wow. And they t- and I remember you said earlier in this conversation that the police had told you that it was a residence that she called from. Correct. Wow. But they wouldn't give me the name of who it was. Yeah. Did you ever try calling that number? Yeah, I did several times. And any nobody and I never got it. Never got an answer. Back then, you know, people didn't yeah. really have answer machines like they sure. do now, voicemail and stuff. So no, I never got an answer. You'd think, though, that somebody would eventually pick up, right? Yeah. <laughs> you'd, you'd think if she was calling from that number, unless the police were wrong, maybe it was a collect. You know, you could see if it, you were calling a payphone and not being picked up if nobody's standing around. Yeah. I guess maybe the police could have been wrong about that. But it would uh, – is there any chance, Joyce, that you have that number somewhere in your collection of stuff regarding this case? Any chance? Uh, I don't think so. Oh, I've wow. looked. Okay. Um, I've looked for quite a few years now, and I, I, I don't think so. I think they must have uh, they must have taken the, the whole thing without me making a copy of it. Have you ever gone back to the police and asked them for that phone number? No. Um, okay. I and and believe it or not, after all these years, I have never. Ask for a police report. Hmm. I don't really know why, but I've just never done it. Okay. Um, I, I I would like to go um, to Baton Rouge, and, and I've told my daughter several times, you know, uh, that we need to take a little road trip to Baton Rouge to the police department and ask to see her file, get a copy of the police report, and mm-hmm. you know, perhaps that phone number. <laughs> Right. Well, if you ever do, you know what? I know we're going to keep in contact after this interview, after this episode airs. But if you ever do that, I hope you let me know. You know, I, you know, especially if you can find that phone number. I with the internet these days, you can do all sorts of crazy things when it comes to tracking down phone numbers and things. You know, we might, you know, maybe we get lucky. We might be able to find out where that phone number was. What that phone number was connected to in 1988. Yeah. It's a lot easier to do that now than it was back then. Yeah. My daughter had told me a few months ago that she wants to, she asked me for a copy of the police report, and I said, believe it or not, I don't have one. Mm. I said, why? And she said, well, I want to do my own little investigation. Yeah. I said, really? Yeah. My daughter works in, um, uh, she's the head of a uh, thing for human trafficking. Oh, my. Uh, in Shreveport, and, and so I guess with her work there, that she's, and that's one thing the police department did tell us at the time, is there could have been a possibility that she was trafficked. Yeah. Um, you know, so anyway, yeah. my, my daughter never met Becky, and, mm-hmm. you know, because she was born, what left her, she disappeared. Uh, so, you know. Okay. I'll let you know if we make that trip down. I, I would like to. I would like to know about that. I would. We just have a few more things uh, to cover, then we'll wrap this up. Now, a few years later, 
the police, uh, this was, I think, a couple things that actually Jamie had told me. They had somehow, they had all the letters that Becky had sent Edwin Edwards. Yeah, and, and that was surprising to me, why he would keep those kind of letters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that was my understanding, that they went to his office, uh, when they went to talk to him about her disappearance, mm-hmm. that he turned over all the letters to them. Did he ever admit having an, a relationship with her? I'm not really sure. Okay. I don't know. Uh, would you, you know, would you say that your, the Becky, your sister, was obsessed with Edwin Edwards, or would you say that maybe it was? I mean, she moved away. Could it be that maybe he had a, a thing for her? Well, I really think she was obsessed with him. Mm-hmm. Because I would look at it being that he kept all these letters. You know, if you're getting letters from somebody that, you, you know, it seems, I agree with you. Why did he keep the letters? That's a little strange. Right. That's, that, that was my first thought when Jamie told me that you know, the police department had all those letters. I'm like, what? Right. I mean, and, and him being married as well. Sure. Sure. I mean, if you're a married person and you're getting a letter from somebody that's obsessed with you, the natural thing to do would be to burn it or shred it or whatever. Or at least alert the police or something. Hey, this this is yeah. getting a little, yeah. little strange. In any, did you get to see any of those letters? Well, I didn't really read any of them. Okay. I, I saw her write many letters to him through okay. the years, you know, and, and, you know, mail them off and that kind of stuff. To your knowledge, in any of those letters, did she ever, how do I put it, did she ever threaten him? You know, being as a married man, if you don't do this, I'm going to go to your wife. Did she ever do anything like that in any of those letters? To your knowledge. Really? To your knowledge. I don't think so. All right. I ask, I ask because if you don't know, a lot of these disappearances and murders and things, violent things that happen like this among People who are married, who are then cheating on their wife, cheating on their husband, a, a lot of it has to do with that. I thought that you were going to leave your wife and here you're not doing that and I'm going to go to her. And that's when the problems start. That's It's the only reason I'm asking you that. It's possible that she could have, but I don't know for a fact. Okay. okay. Uh, Jamie also told me that, uh, as bizarre as this is, that... Becky's purse was in some lieutenant's desk all those years later. Is that... Yeah, I don't know. Don't know about that? Okay. I know that's what she said, but I don't really know. Okay, I don't know about that. Okay. But I I know in talking to Jamie, like I said, Jamie is Becky's daughter, and she assisted uh, for this episode and some of the information that was collected. Um... Are you familiar with the statement the police said that they believed that Becky might have run away with a truck driver? Yes. Okay. And I think that's total nonsense. Total nonsense. (laughs) If not just for the simple reason, it doesn't seem like her type, frankly. No, no. No, she, as you've portrayed, she's not, she's uh, into guys that, you know, have positions of power and things like that. 
Yeah, and even though, I mean, she had uh, fancy clothes and, you know, like evening gowns and, you know, like when she would mm-hmm. go to these um, benefits and these uh, cocktail parties and all this kind of stuff, you know, she would dress, you know, to the to the nines, you know, I mean, um, so, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I, I don't, I okay. never believe the truck driver thing, you know. I would believe the trafficking thing before I would the truck driver thing. Okay. I just don't think that um, whatever did happen to her that was on her own free will. Right. Okay, so you don't believe that she just ran off? No. Okay. Because we should state that you had told me that in some of these places where she'd gone, like you'd said she'd gone to the West Coast, to Washington... Some of these places, when she decides she didn't want to be anywhere there, she'd just pick up and leave. Right. Right? She kind of would leave, like, clothes and things behind. Yeah. Okay. All right. But when you look at this situation that happened on December 27th, 1988, this is a little too much to believe of that. She left, like, right. too much behind. I mean, it was her purse, her cigarettes, all her clothes and, and everything else. A little too much. Yeah, okay. and her makeup bag, you know, she right. she pretty much, she wouldn't answer her door unless she had her full face of makeup on. Mm. Okay. You know, she wouldn't go outside without, you know, being mm. totally presentable, you know. Right. I got to get to this question now, uh, Joyce, because we're coming near the end of this interview. What do you think happened to your sister? Um. I mean, you, you of course, now... You got married, you have children, uh, you've had years to think about this. Uh, no new suspects have popped up, to your knowledge, over the years. The police have not updated you on the case at any time, have they? No. No. I, I just really feel like that um, maybe whatever she knew about somebody, maybe possibly from the interrogation here at the Shreveport Police Department, mm-hmm. Maybe somebody from there might have done, you know, might have murdered her and, like, threw her in the river where she wouldn't be found or mm-hmm. um, either had somebody else do it. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but she, she never told She was paranoid, though. You told us about that. She was paranoid right after that, thinking that she might get in trouble for that. And that... Does that kind of what leads you in that direction? Yeah. It does. Yeah. And uh, what do, you know, uh, what do the rest of your family think? Do they hold similar views or, or what do they think? Um, yeah, they, they pretty much think the, the same thing. You know, um, one of my older brothers, not, not too awfully long ago, you know, he, he just said those dang cops killed her. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And I'm covering up. That's what he said, you know. Okay. Wow, this is a tough one. Uh, how does this? How did this affect your family? You know, when when you finally, when of course your wedding came and went, you got married. She wasn't there. How has it affected your family over the years? It's been um, a really sad, you know, sad time with her not being with us on on all occasions on. Thanksgiving, on Christmas, on 
her birthday, um, you know, my birthday, uh, my mom's birthday, um, just every occasion that comes around, you know, we always, um, you know, we always say a prayer and, and, um, and acknowledge, you know, that she is not with us. Mm-hmm. Okay. If uh, my listeners can help you out, and, and, and as you know, I, we had a discussion before we started this interview that it does seem like people listen to the show and some good things have happened. It's only been around four months, but uh, we've generated at least two new leads in two cases that I've covered. I just found a, you know an interesting thing that happened today regarding a case I covered where a, 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 you know a suspect in a disappearance – uh, is going to be is being subpoenaed to appear, to appear before a grand jury, and one of the policemen said he actually listened to the show. Uh, so you know we're trying to make things here happen at Unfound. How can my listeners help you out? Where can they find you? Uh, you know, and any more information about how they can help you? you? Have a Facebook page? Any information like that? Yeah, um, there is a Facebook page that is, is called Help Find Rebecca Calling Gary Missing. December 27th, 1988. Um, mm-hmm. You can message on that, you know, uh, Facebook page would probably be the um, fastest. Um, okay. Myself and Jamie both, we, you know, pretty much monitor that page every day and any mm-hmm. messages or likes or whatever that comes through there, we respond pretty quickly to. Mm-hmm. Do you have, over the years, have you ever gone to any... Uh get-togethers with other family members who have lost loved ones to disappearances? You know, there's, there's a few organizations out there, like Kelly Murphy was on my show. She heads up Project Jason. Have you ever gone to anything like that? No, I haven't. Um, and uh, an acquaintance here in Shreveport, she she has, um, every December, she has a banquet, you know, for families that's missing loved ones. and And I just have never been able to bring myself to go. I get hmm. too emotional. Um, I um, I don't know if Jamie mentioned to you that um, this past year um, we, for the first time, had our DNA samples taken. Hmm. Um, so it took from 1988 to um, 2016. Mm-hmm. Or late 15, I don't remember exactly, mm-hmm. somewhere in that range, just for us to get our DNA, to get yeah. get that DNA in CODIS to see if there's any matches, you know. Yeah. Um, so that's the kind of um, help that we've received from the police department. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're not alone. I mean, I've had uh, some other people who have, you know, disappeared and all the day, all of a sudden police show up one day and say, hey. Would like your DNA to put in a database, you know. So that's you know that's not so strange, but yeah, it, sometimes it takes some time. You're right. It, that was actually done here in the Shreveport, mm-hmm. or well, actually Bozier uh, Police Department, because of a another case of a a missing girl that uh, had been found. It kind of gave us some renewed renewed um, hope, and um, we kind of got in touch with the detective on that case, and she. Call down to Baton Rouge because it was their jurisdiction. That's the first thing she asked us is if we had our DNA done. And she couldn't get any cooperation from the Baton Rouge Police Department. 
and so she got her mom to file some type of paper and get an override where they could do DNA in Mosier instead of us having to go to Baton Rouge to do it. Hmm. Okay. So I thought that was strange that she, a homicide detective, could not get the Baton Rouge Police Department to cooperate with her. Hmm. Because you would think yeah. one police department to the other. You'd think. You would think. You'd think. You would think so, Joyce. Um, anything else before uh, I leave you tonight? Anything else? Um, that's all that I can think of, actually. Okay. I, w- I would just say that you should maybe think about going to one of those events. I think that you'd find that uh, they can be rewarding. You get uh, people supporting other people. You know, you, you know, um, just never know who you can run into there uh, that, that, that can help you uh, with your sister's case. So maybe next December you think about it. You've got a long time to figure that out. You maybe think about it this year. Yeah. yeah. And another thing, you know, we've never done a declaration of death on her. Okay. Um, hmm. It's just kind of hard to do when there's not a body. It is. Because you, you hold on to that hope that, you know, they're still alive somewhere and that can, they can show up. You know, you hear these these things on the news, you know, about these women that have been missing for many, many years and then they show up. So that kind of just gives renewed hope, you know, um, every time I see one of those. And then it's like, you know, mm-hmm. we're not going to do a declaration of death. Because we yeah. don't have that hope. Yeah. And and you know what? There's nothing wrong with that, Joyce. There's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that at all. Joyce, thank you for being on this uh, uh, episode of Unfound. We're gonna I'm gonna try everything I can to help you out. Okay, I appreciate it much. You're welcome. Thank you for being on Unfound. And that was my interview with Joyce Lee. I deeply thank her for joining me on this episode. I'm not sure all of you understand how tough it can be for some of these family members to talk about the disappearance of a loved one. It's very difficult, and I know as many interviews as I have done so far, all of them have been so good, but I know how difficult it is for them, and I want you to realize that as well. Regarding this case... Lots of possibilities, and I think that it goes back to how I started this episode, talking about popularity. There's a lot of possibilities, from an ex-boyfriend to some crooked cops to the philandering governor to even possibly another apartment resident. Here are some points that jumped out at me while I conducted the interview. I believe if we could be 100% sure why Becky didn't go to Shreveport with Jamie on December 18th or 19th or whenever they might have gone had Becky gone, we would know why she disappeared. Now, I know what that means because, as you heard Joyce say, she believed that Joyce stuck around the Baton Rouge area because of Edwin Edwards. However... I'm inclined to believe if that was the case, that she wouldn't have been so secretive about it. She wouldn't have been maybe so abrupt because, once again, 
At that point, Becky and Edwin Edwards had had this affair going on for years. In fact, the family knew about it. And I think that it would have been better for Becky just to admit that she was going to stay in Baton Rouge to spend the Christmas time with Edwin Edwards than to not tell anybody and leave it all up in the air and really, it seems, just upset her family more. So it seems like that would be kind of the information that she would tell her family, not that she would withhold it. And it should also be noted, it's not just the family who didn't know why she continued to stay in Baton Rouge. It doesn't seem like anybody knew that. Now see, how I would define that is maybe she didn't tell anybody why she was staying in Baton Rouge is maybe because she didn't want to get any crap for what she was doing. Meaning maybe she was going to be spending time with somebody who the family didn't like, who was suspicious, something like that. In contrast to her maybe just withholding that it was Edwin Edwards, which was something that the family kind of knew about anyway. So when it gets to the 27th and she says that things aren't working out here in Baton Rouge, that's what goes through my head. And I'm going to come back to this point a little bit later. The envelope. I'm not sure what to make of it. I I just don't know. Uh, She carried it around with her, it sounds to me, for a year. I mean, quite a long time, as Joyce explained. And nobody ever got to see the inside of it. And really, when you hear about something like that, it's almost like a true crime novel, a piece of fiction, or a movie. And I have to tell you, I've spent a lot of time being that True crime shows, and especially this show, is about the accumulation of information. What kind of information could Becky have accumulated that would be an inch thick that she would take around that could be incriminating to somebody should she disappear? Once again, where would she get that information? And I know that Joyce answered that question I'm still not sure that I, I know what the answer is to that. I'm once again trying to think back to 1988. Because once again, it's not like somebody could go on the internet and go to some website and find out some information on some public official that's somewhat salacious, print it out, and put it in an envelope for safekeeping in a, in a safe you know, for somewhere down the road. Couldn't do that in 1988. So I don't know what was in the envelope, I, and, and then it's dis, is disappeared. I don't know. Maybe you all have some insight. Regarding the interrogation and the paranoia, I believe that was real. Uh, I did some looking up of the new chief in Shreveport who came in and wanted to clean things up. He had a hard time doing that because he was – seen as being from out of town. They did not promote within, from within. And uh, he did, I don't know if he was successful, but he gave it his best shot to uh, try to clean that department up. I'm just wondering how she, he found out about Becky in the first place. That might be interesting to me. 
because then it might lead to the idea of why she was paranoid after that. But I also keep in mind that interrogation was done sometime in 1987. She didn't disappear till the end of 1988. So over a year later, somebody could still be harboring a grudge for the testimony. I just don't know. I don't know what to make of it. As far as her running off, I tend to agree with Joyce. They, she might have believed that at the beginning, given how J- Pe- Becky had left places before, kind of left everything and moved on. But this seems uh, not like that. Being that she had everything packed up, it was enough that she would have needed help to move all of that stuff. Why pack all of that stuff and then leave it there? And as Joyce mentioned, she left her purse there, her cigarettes there. Things that she would definitely make up, as Joyce also said. She would definitely take those things uh, if uh, she was running off, as the police said, with a truck driver. Let's just say. I gotta tell you, I know this is going to seem very strange, but this case reminds me a lot of the disappearance of Jennifer Kessie, which happened in Orlando. What year was it? 2005, 2006. And I know that may seem strange, but, and that's not a case I'm ever gonna cover on this show because uh, it's already been covered over and over and over again. Uh, it's gotten plenty of attention, and you know my attitude is I wanna go find cases that aren't as well-known because those people need attention too, those families, those victims. But over the years, I've convinced myself that the reason Jennifer Kessie disappeared is because although she was engaged and she had just come back from a trip, I'm thinking that she probably had another guy on the side. And I don't have time to get into all of that. And this other guy was upset that she went on this trip with her fiancé. And I don't think it's a coincidence that she disappeared right after she came back from that trip. I think it was maybe a a jealous uh, ex-boyfriend, a jealous current guy on the side who let his emotions and jealousy and everything get the best of him who made Jennifer Kessie disappear. That's my own theory, just the way I look at it. I feel the same way in this case, and what sticks out to me is the point that Joyce made about how Edwin Edwards was always number one in Becky's life. No matter what other guys she was seeing and and going out with or whatever, if Edwin Edwards called her up or the limousine appeared outside, she'd drop everything she was doing to be with him. And I'm wondering if one of these guys that she was seeing when Edwin Edwards wasn't around got jealous. Just like I think there was a guy in Jennifer Kessie's life that got jealous. Because remember something. We've taken for granted, looking at that picture that was ripped up on the bed, that Becky did that. Is it possible that a guy did that? That he got upset did something to Becky and saw that picture on the wall, was upset that she ran off with him for a couple days over the Christmas time, the holidays, 
And he had to look at that picture one more time, and he ripped it off the wall, tore it out of its frame, and ripped it up. So ticked off that Becky had dumped him to run off with the governor again. I don't know if that's ever been thought about. Everybody, I think, has just taken for granted that that uh, Becky ripped it up. Maybe a guy ripped it up. As far as Edwin Edwards goes, and I warned you not to get caught up in the conspiracy side of this and obsess because he was a famous person who was involved with Becky. I don't think that he had anything to do with it. Uh, he got divorced the next year, you should know. And he was known as a womanizer, but as Joyce said, he was not known as being violent toward women, even though he was a womanizer and a two-timer. No allegations that he raped anybody or was violent with any of these women. And it doesn't sound to me like he had any reason to make her want to disappear. I've entertained the idea, well, maybe she was pregnant and he found out or, or, or something like that. Um, still, I still don't believe that that is enough proof to have him involved. And still, I have a hard time imagining how that all would have worked. Uh, would his bodyguards have been involved in this? Would Edwin Edwards himself really have showed up? to take her away, and it doesn't seem to me that Edwin Edwards would be the type of guy to show up at her place, and there's a couple cups there where they were sitting down drinking coffee. There's just something about that uh, that is not plausible to me. And I got to tell you, as Joyce and I talked about, it would really be nice to try to track down that phone number that Becky called from on December 27th. Uh, that would be a pretty good clue. She says that uh, the police in Baton Rouge have that. It would really be nice to get a hold of it because I think with technology today, we could go back and find out whose phone number that was back then. What I think needs to happen in this case is somebody in Louisiana needs to step up. Somebody who remembers Shreveport and Baton Rouge in the 1980s. Maybe somebody who was on the police force in those times. Somebody who remembers when this happened. Somebody who might have even known Becky that hasn't been interviewed so far. But I think this is a, a disappearance that uh, absolutely can be solved, can be resolved. But somebody in Baton Rouge in particular needs to step up and think back to Christmas time, 1988. Did they see something strange? Did they hear something strange? Did some guy later, you know, make a confession over a beer? You know, back in 1988, I knew this woman, Becky, and this happened, and somebody who's bothered it up all these years. I think that's what needs to happen. Now, all of you know about this case, and you can go out there and talk about it, maybe do your own research, especially those of you who live in Louisiana, in particular the Baton Rouge area, and maybe you can turn something up and uh, give Becky's family the results they're looking for. Thank you for listening. I'm Ed Denzel. 
and you've been listening to Unfound. Thank you.